You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at The Washington Post. Well, one week ago today, Wagner Group chief Yevgeny Prigozhin challenged the authority of Vladimir Putin by leading a breathtaking rebellion against the Russian leader. And then it was over. Joining me now, Mary Ilyushina, a Washington Post reporter covering Russia, coming to us from Riga, Latvia. Mary, welcome to First Look. Good morning. Good morning. So the rebellion was quelled after 24 hours. What are the immediate challenges to Putin's power in your view? I think there are two main things that he has to do and he has been doing is to ensure that Russians are sort of moving on from this and not so alarmed by this and also bolstering his popularity uh, among Russian people. And also, secondly, finding out who knew about this, who might have known about this and didn't tell um, the authorities and higher-ups and maintaining control of his own ranks. Because the most important, I think, challenge here for him is to kind of repair some of these fractures that we have been seeing within the Russian elite, within the Russian power structures, and especially um, in the military, because so far Russia has been waging this war in Ukraine through you know, regular forces, but a lot of paramilitary forces, and there are a lot of really moving and coherent parts here that, has, uh, that have really, really affected the way Russia perform it, performed in this war. Uh, Mary, you have a, an illuminating piece in, in the Washington Post today about Putin and what he's doing to try to repair his image. And there's one line that ju- that jumped out at me among many, and that was, people have seen Putin more in the last week than they have maybe in the last uh, few months or few weeks, right? I would say even a couple of years, because since mm. the coronavirus pandemic, he was essentially kind of hunkering down at his residencies. He was very paranoid about uh, having any crowds around him. Um, you know, just to put it in perspective, foreign leaders, if they refuse to take coronavirus tests or go through, uh, you know, those various precautions, had to sit six meters away from him in huge halls. Um, and he was definitely not seen uh, in just, you know, talking to ordinary Russians on the street. And this week, he was literally everywhere. Um, he was, he went to the south of Russia, to Dagestan, where it was, you know, he all of a sudden, after a tour, sightseeing tour of the area, stumbled on hundreds of people standing in a cordoned off area with state media there, filming <laughs> how he kind of spontaneously approached them all and said hello, and they greeted him. And that was like really a mirror of some of the scenes we've seen uh, in Rostov and Don, where Evgeny Prigozhin and Wagner fighters have been cheered on and applauded um, by just the regular folks around there. Um, so there was definitely a lot of sort of damage control going on here this week. You also reported this week that uh, the president of Belarus, uh, Alexander Lukashenko, claims he talked Putin out of possibly killing Prigozhin. Was there internal pressure uh, for Putin to take a tougher line? I think that was expected. And it was, you know, just when I was talking to all the analysts on the day was happening, the question was whether he will be killed or jailed, essentially. And the fact that Prigozhin kind of managed to get away unscathed, that was very surprising to many. And Putin is not known for um, just allowing traitors to disappear, as, you know, he's said himself. You know, he said that, you know, being a traitor is really the worst thing you can be. Um, And he has targeted some of uh, Russian uh, special services, uh, special service officers who went abroad um, or turned in Russia 
uh, outside the country. So we know his position about this. Um, and everyone kind of expected this really tough response that Wagner will be, uh, Wagner Fidos be arrested, Prigozhin probably also arrested. Um, and Lukashenko gave this very uh, kind of super detailed uh, press conference where he kind of laid out all his phone conversations with Prigozhin, with Vladimir Putin. So, and he claims, obviously, you know, he's known to exaggerate a lot of things, but he claims that he talked Putin out of, um, you know, do, taking the harshest action. Uh, but we actually don't know exactly what was Vladimir Putin's opinion on this in the while it was unfolding. Mm -hmm. You know, this week, President Biden went to great lengths to assure the world that the United States and the West had nothing to do with, with the rebellion. The question is, do Kremlin officials believe that? Well, I think, I hope they believe that because, you know, that would mean uh, that Evgeny Prigozhin, who they've relied on for many, many years to do sort of unofficial Kremlin bidding across the world, and for example, in Middle East and Africa, has been you know, a foreign asset all along, which would be, again, a huge security breach. Um, it is a very common Kremlin line to say that everything sort of bad, any protests, unrest, any sort of um, dissent that happens in Russia is all uh, done, orchestrated by the West. Um, and they have tried to kind of allude that they're looking into whether uh, you know, the West has anything to do with it, but it was way more kind of toned down than usual because um, again, Prigozhin was a man of sort of Putin's elite. He was his close associate for um, kind of many years and Wagner uh, has been working in the interests of the Russian state. So it's kind of hard to go from, uh, we're fully supporting Wagner and they're fighting for us in Ukraine to, oh, he was actually, you know, Western stooge all along. Um, can you talk more about the investigation that you write about in your story today uh, into the rebellion and and the fear among elites uh, and also the fear among folks within the military, particularly about questions about whether, well, questions about how high up did it go in terms of the knowledge of what Prigozhin ended up doing? Yeah, well, I think from what we know, is they're definitely trying to figure that out there probably looking at quite a few people, not only the top generals, but sort of throughout the entire hierarchy and sort of the food chain here, um, because Prigozhin had quite a bit of a, a good reputation actually among sort of lower ranking officers, uh, because he emerged as this very unlikely kind of truth teller um, who was laying out all of these strategic mistakes and um, poor planning on the part of the regular military. And a lot of uh, people have sort of agreed with him without actually publicly saying it, and he went and said it publicly. So they have to manage that. Uh, he was also known to be um, in a good, at least working relationship with uh, General Sergei Suravikin, who was the overall commander last year, but then he was demoted and he's now a deputy overall commander of, sort of, of the operation in Ukraine. His whereabouts have been unknown. We don't know exactly what happened to him, but there's a lot of speculation whether he was called in for questioning. Again, we don't know if he was arrested or anything, but um, that he was, you know, at least probably giving some accounts of what Prigozhin's plans were and what he was thinking at the time uh, before this rebellion happened. Let me get you on one more one more thing before I let you go. Um, the, the war, Russia's war on Ukraine continues. The Post reported this week that Ukraine's counteroffensive has seized back about 50 miles of Russian-held territory in the country's south. But Ukrainian President Zelensky says the operation is going slower 
than he then desired. What moves is Russia making on the front lines? So Russia's main goal right now is to keep uh, Ukrainian forces uh, as far away as possible. Um, you know, we obviously heard a lot about how Ukraine was preparing for this counteroffensive. Um, but meanwhile, Russia has also been taking a lot of measures to prepare. They've dug in, they've built so many reinforcements and fortifications along the front line. There are also miles and miles of minefields that Ukraine has to clear to get to Russians. They have stockpiled and continue sort of ration the artillery shells, and they're hitting Ukraine pretty hard um, with that. They've kind of re-engaged their aviation. Uh, it was, you know, it was very unclear kind of how um, Russia is going to use its aviation at the beginning of the war. It didn't perform very well, but now it seems like they're trying to step it up. Um, so they are. Their goal essentially is to avoid very close infantry fighting with Ukraine forces, because that's when they could crumble. But for now, they are in a slightly stronger position, definitely stronger position than they were last year. And they are trying to maintain um, that as much as possible. But now, of course, with this after this mutiny, a lot of questions about morale um, are being raised, how much the regular troops know about what happened um, in Russia last week, whether that affects their thinking about um, how they regard their officers. So there's still a lot of moving parts in that regard. Mary Ilyushina covering Russia for the Washington Post. Thank you very much for uh, coming Thank to you. First Look and for that report. Have a good weekend. Uh, we'll keep the conversation going with our opinions roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post where we will find Washington Post columnists Jennifer Rubin and Ramesh Panuru. Jennifer, Ramesh, welcome back to First Look. Nice to be here. Hello. Um, so um, Ramesh, I'm going to start with you and continue the, the conversation I was just having with Mary about the goings on in Russia and Ukraine. Uh, it, is it in the West's best interest uh, for Putin to be in complete authoritarian control? Or is instability a good thing in this case? I think I know the answer. Well, you know, I think that uh, actually this is a pretty serious dilemma because uh, it's not as though all the alternatives to Putin are, um, you know, liberal reformers uh, as much as one might wish. And we can't guarantee that the response of Putin to instability won't be uh, more and crazier aggression. Um, so I, I think it makes sense for the administration to try to keep a little bit of distance um, from kind of the internal machinations of uh, of the regime, which is what it's doing. Mm -hmm. Jennifer, what, what do you what do you think? I mean, to Ramesh's point, uh, it's not like there's somebody waiting in the wings um, who would be pro-Western or someone who is you know less bad than Putin. I think the administration for now should and is focusing simply on the military side of the equation. Whatever's going on in Russia is going on in Russia, and our ability to influence those events aren't very great. What we can do is influence what's going on in the battlefield. And to the extent that there is dissension, to the extent that the Wagner group is taken out of the equation, we can certainly exploit that. And now is um, the beginnings of the counteroffensive. We should be arming uh, and continuing to arm uh, Ukraine. We should be continuing to provide intelligence. So I think we need to be opp opportunistic here. Um, where there is an ability to accelerate, we should. And what is going to be in Russia is going to be. And to the extent that that disrupts Russia's side of the equation, 
situation, Ukraine should be able to make uh, make up some ground on that. Um, you know, uh, and that's a that's a good point. I want to get both of you on this other question. Back to the volatility, the volatility question in Russia. Um, we can't forget that Russia sits on an enormous stockpile of of nuclear weapons. And I'm just wondering, and I would love to get both of you get your thoughts on this. Might that that knowledge and recognition and fact move some Republicans to be a little more enthusiastic in, in their support of, uh, of Ukraine, of the United States and the West's efforts to support Ukraine? Because while the administration is 100% behind President Zelensky, there are plenty of Republicans, including the House Speaker, who are rhetorically, anyway, putting some daylight between mm. um, the United States and and uh, and Ukraine. Ramesh, you go first. So I think that the possession of all of those nuclear weapons by Russia has been an inhibiting factor on U.S. policy across the board. Um, that 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 not just Republicans, but even the administration would have been more willing to supply more arms more quickly um, than they have because of the, exactly this prudential judgment about what will happen uh, in terms of the uh, the nuclear equation. The Republican side of things, I think, is um, to the extent that there's been a change in the recent past and could be a change in the future, I think it has a lot more to do with domestic politics. I think it was interesting that Speaker McCarthy was more outspoken in support of Ukraine after Tucker Carlson lost his primetime slot on Fox News. Um, and I suspect it's also going to be influenced by how Donald Trump is performing in the Republican primaries. And and Jennifer, I want to get your thoughts, but also if you can weave in your your thoughts about it. I just remembered this: Mike Pence, former Vice President Mike Pence, on the ground in Ukraine yesterday. There's definitely a split in Republican ranks. There is a section of the Republican Party that is, for lack of a better term, traditional hawks um, in the mold of Ronald Reagan and um, the entire sort of modern American uh, conservative movement. Um, that is the Mike Pence's. That is, frankly, Mitch McConnell, um, who has been very supportive and, in fact, at times impatient because they think they have uh, believed that the administration has been too cautious about the nuclear issue that uh, Ramesh uh, pointed to. But unfortunately, that is not the entirety of the Republican Party. And there is a very large segment, the loud segment of the party, um, that has played footsie with Putin. Um, and um, I think they are driven by not only domestic policy, but by this ideology of authoritarianism. They like the tough guy. They like the bully. They like the guy who has contempt for elites and for the rule of law. They identify with him. Um, and uh, unfortunately, there is a large segment, a growing segment of the Republican Party that frankly has renounced democracy. And so they look to these um, strong men around the world as figureheads, as leaders, as inspiration. And I think um, they will ultimately
ultimately um, not want to be on the side of the loser. So to the extent that Ukraine improves its position and um, emerges uh, victorious, um, they'll quickly switch sides. Um, but for now, you have this oppositional behavior, um, not unlike a two-year-old, um, that if um, the West and responsible parties want them to do X, they'll do not X. Um, and that uh, carries over into a lot of different realms. So I think what we have to look for is um, how the uh, presidential candidates um, line up against this. You correctly point out that Mike Pence um, seems to be on the um, side of sobriety here. Um, DeSantis seems confused and kind of bouncing all over the place, depending upon uh, who he last talked to. And Donald Trump, of course, has been a, a great friend of Putin. So uh, a lot of this is going to be driven not from Congress, but from the presidential political realm. Right. Um, let, let's talk about, <clears throat> excuse me, the big story in, in Washington on Thursday, and that's the Supreme Court's ruling in the affirmative action case where um, they held that admissions programs at Harvard and the University of North Carolina that relied in part on race violated the Constitution. The president <clears throat> addressed the nation yesterday, and here's his reaction from the White House. We cannot let this decision be the last word. I want to emphasize, we cannot let this decision be the last word. While the court can render a decision, it cannot change what America stands for. So, so Jennifer, you're a lawyer. Um, two, two questions here. Is affirmative action on, uh, uh, in college admissions for African-Americans dead? And two, the president says, we cannot let this decision be the last word. How? I am uh, in neither the camp that this is the end of affirmative action, um, great thing, or in the camp that says end of affirmative action, terrible thing. I think what Roberts did was he left a giant loophole that admissions officers are going to drive a truck through. And that was the portion of the opinion, which interestingly Biden read from, that said nothing in this is going to prevent schools from considering students' stories of overcoming adversity, whether it be socioeconomic or racial. So what we are now going to get is a flood of woe is me applications, not only from African-Americans, but from everybody. Um, and we're going to hear um, exactly what the Supreme Court apparently doesn't want to hear, that people have been victims and that they have, um, here's all the bad things that have happened. Here's all the things I've done to overcome them. They have set out a roadmap for a game, another game of racial gamesmanship, which I don't think is particularly healthy. And they've done this because they refuse to acknowledge that there is systemic racism which affects everyone in society. It's not enough to be black in their view. You have to be black and then prove up the fact that you've been discriminated against. You can be from Idaho and that a priori is a fine reason to get in the university because we want geographic diversity. But to be black, you have to show grit. You have to show that you have overcome something. And that's this dichotomy that they've set up. Um, it is um, not intellectually consistent, frankly, because if you're using race, you're using race. And secondly, it's going to create more chaos, more gamesmanship. Um, and so the president, I think, rightly says um, there are ways frankly, around this. And Chief Justice Roberts laid out the great, the game plan. He pointed in the direction. This is how you do it. And he said a couple other things that I think were very important. One is you can have socioeconomic affirmative action, and you can really look at some of these categories that are, frankly, um, the avenues for discrimination against African-Americans. If you are looking at 
Harvard alums and their kids, if you are looking at donors, those groups are overwhelmingly white. And by allowing universities to select from them, you're allowing them to give preference to a pool of uh, potential applicants that are overwhelmingly white. The Supreme Court doesn't really care about that. It doesn't recognize that. It doesn't see that systemic racism has created a pool of advantaged people. Um, but that doesn't mean we should tolerate it. That doesn't mean that the Justice Department and universities should allow that continue to continue. That's true of donors. That's true of legacy members. Um, so I think some things that the Supreme Court would rather just overlook because it just assumes that's the way things are, or it's perfectly legitimate to recruit from states that are um, have 99% white um, uh, applicants, um, those things I think are going to get a second look. So I think um, it, it now becomes, frankly, another round of litigation, another round of um, confusion in the ranks. And I would not want to be a college applicant or their parent. I'm very glad my last child just graduated from college. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Congratulations on that. All right, Ramesh, I am curious to, to hear your thoughts uh, on the on the decision and any counterpoints or agreement with Jen. Well, I think that the interesting issue going forward is one that uh, Jennifer has identified, which is how does the uh, decision and its ruling get enforced in the future against what will I think be pretty determined efforts by admissions offices at this tiny slice of colleges that are affected by this. Um, to get around it. Uh, I, I, and and she's right, Chief Justice Roberts does open up this potential loophole. He tries to close it again, or at least narrow it. Um, there's, you know, toward the very end of the majority opinion, he says, you know, basically this cannot be a backdoor way of reintroducing race-based admissions. Uh, and that, I think, is a formula for uh, further litigation, where you're going to say, well, how are these things being used? Is it in a highly individuated manner? Does um, does does somebody who um, is getting a is, is are people getting a point for race, or are they getting a are they genuinely getting a point for overcoming adversity of a kind that people might get for overcoming different kinds of adversity? Um, so I think it is not the last word in that sense. In the sense of overcoming this ruling and getting it changed, I think it's going to be, um, you know, that's going to be the sort of thing that would take at least a generation in terms of, you know, getting different court appointments. Um, because there's not a lot when you make when you have a constitutional ruling on the part of the Supreme Court that says, that says this is what equal protection means. Obviously, Congress can't, even if it has the will to do it, just overcome that. Mm -hmm. All right, we've got less than five minutes left, and we got to talk about Bidenomics. Um, the president went to Chicago Wednesday to tout his economic record, saying his approach was working and was a break from trickle-down economics championed by Republicans. Uh, Ramesh, after the past two and a half years of Republicans complaining about Bidenomics, the president's trying to turn to, to turn it into a cudgel against them. Uh, does the data make it a viable weapon for the president and for Democrats? Well, so it seems to me that the clear tendency for the last 30 years has been the public is usually unhappy about the state of the economy. And when it's happy about the state of the economy, it's because wages for most people are rising and they're rising faster than prices. Now, we could be in a situation when Biden is running for re-election 
a year from now that that is the case and people are happy about the ele- about the economy. But it's not the case right now. And that is why I think you have this this clear tendency to think negatively about the economy. That's something that can't be, there's no amount of messaging on the part of Biden, even very clever messaging, even messaging that has some valid points to make that is gonna turn this around. People are gonna have to feel that their paychecks are more than keeping up with their bills before they're gonna have a positive attitude about this economy. Jennifer, um, I would love to get your thoughts on this, but I wanna add this data point to to the conversation, uh, an Associated, Pro, Associated Press poll this week showed only 34% of Americans approve of the president's handling of the economy, to, to Ramesh's point. So w- what do you think? Will, will embracing the Bidenomics um, slam against him from Republicans and turning try to turn it into a positive work? Uh, I think it can. And actually, the phenomenon that Ramesh talked about has been turned around. We are now seeing that um, real wages are rising faster than inflation. And in fact, large gains have gone to people at the lower income levels. And the administration has been rushing forth this week, it's very interesting, with a plethora of data to show that and to show other factors that should give people a sense that things are turning around. Um, I think people are overly negative about um, the economy, in part because every headline says, this is good news, but in a recession may be around the corner. And a recession is not around the corner. They just uh, increased the growth um, percentage for first quarter to 2%. The Fed now and many businesses, many private economists are looking for reduced but still um, healthy growth. So I think um, as the facts set in, this may turn around. But I do think that it's important for Biden to tell the story. There are cities and regions of the country that are being transformed, that when you put a plant that has good paying jobs that's going to employ tens of thousands of people over decades, that is transformative. That is an improvement in ordinary people's lives. And I think it's going to be up to him to show that and to explain why that's good for all Americans. Um, And I think um, we just saw inflation uh, go down again, uh, down to 3.8%, 4.6% in core inflation. So as inflation continues to go down, jobs and wages continue to go up, I think you're going to see um, perhaps a better change in uh, in mood. Um, I think uh, anyone watching from the White House is probably saying, please, Jen, I hope you're right. <laughs> Jennifer, <laughs> Jennifer Rubin, Ramesh Panuru, we got to go. Um, thanks for coming back to First Look. Have a good weekend and also a good fourth. You too. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with First Look, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.